Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. I'm Michelle Martin. Welcome to Money and Me, the show where I speak with real investors, people who have skin in the game, and they let us into their portfolios. And they also let us into how they view the markets, how they think through their decisions. Today, we welcome Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow with us. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. Good to have you here. All right, I want to start with the U.S. dollar because I've heard people, you know, coming up to me saying I have a lot of um, I have a lot of assets locked up and linked to the U.S. dollar, but I know it's weakened by nearly twelve percent against a basket of top currencies since it peaked in March. Also, I was reading one of my favorite analysts, uh, Jeff Haley, who's who writes the U.S. dollar will be quote in the naughty corner for much of twenty twenty one. What do you think? <laughs> well, you know, so ever since uh, Biden won, especially, right, the whole aspect wherein the geopolitical risks are substantially reduced in the world. And, and that doesn't mean that it's gone, right? Like, make no mistake, the U.S.'s path that they've chosen against China, mm-hmm. it's going to be very difficult to kind of like deviate from that by too much. But the bottom line is uh, the kinds of people that Biden is bringing on to uh, like impaneling them in the White House, it definitely seems like foreign policy will definitely be more predictable. And with like some kind of peace and calm in the geopolitical arena, that will lead to potentially emerging markets currencies outperforming. Uh, you know, China interest China is doing a lot better than the rest of the world in terms of controlling COVID. Its interest rate is not floored at zero percent or for that matter going negative like we can see in the eu so the way the world is shaping out where the us specifically the us and to some extent europe interest rates close to zero still struggling to try and get a grasp of the virus uh growth spurts are being seen across asia definitely in china the fed has come out saying interest rates will basically be kept at zero for the next two to three years So from that perspective, based on interest rates, based on economy growth, based on the ability of governments to try and control this pandemic and come out on top of it, it does seem like all directions are towards emerging Asian currencies, at least, outperforming the U.S. dollar over the near future. Okay, so if not the U.S. dollar, then where should investors be putting their money? I think looking at like a basket of, uh, so first and foremost, uh, you know, currency speculation is something that should be left to the professionals, right? Like I did currency option, Mm -hmm. I did currency option trading for 10 years. And believe me, (laughs) believe you me, I, I have no better insights into where currencies are headed in the near term than literally anyone else on the street. That being said, though, I do feel looking at the overall where where the growth is going to be in the world for the next five to 10 years. Mm. While I do believe that the U.S. will do just fine, it does seem like more and more attention, more and more capital will start flowing towards these hotbeds of growth in like, say, Vietnam, Indonesia, India, and China. And this is not the next three months or six months, but over the next three to five years. So the renminbi or, or maybe the rupiah? 
That's right. Or, you know, Vietnamese dong is slightly more difficult because of capital controls, mm. as is Indian rupees uh, also. But one can expect that, you know, you can always get exposure to those underlying currencies by investing into strong, solid fundamental businesses that operate or have a large exposure. They might be listed in the U.S., but have a strong exposure to this growth segment over here. So I would rather try and not taking a direct currency exposure, mm. but trying to, again, buy these really strong fundamental businesses headquartered out of here or having operating centers over here and take advantage of the growth and hopefully thereby uh, appreciation of the currency also. But broadly, you do agree that we can expect more downside for the U.S. dollar? I just, just purely given the fact of interest rates, right? the, the Fed has like ground its flag. It is saying that I don't even care if inflation goes over 2%. We will be keeping interest rates at basically at 0% for the next three years. And that is actually massive. Like from this, like considering that we've been at basically a 0% interest rate for the past eight, 10 years, that continuing with less geopolitical struggles, with growth coming up in Asia, you know, the aspect of be it businesses or to diversify from an investor point of view, to diversify some amount of assets, not just into equities, but into local currency government bonds of these relatively stable countries might be the way forward for investors. Okay, That's, that's at least how I'm positioning my portfolio. Okay, I just playing devil's advocate. If we expect U.S. equity markets to continue to be strong, though, shouldn't that boost demand for the greenback? So, uh, yes and no, right? Because so the U.S. economy is doing well. Uh, the pure fact, given the fact that interest rates are zero, pretty much all asset classes should appreciate, right? Because if you have a choice of putting money at zero percent in your cap in your savings deposit, mm -hmm. or taking that out and deploying it somewhere where you can accrue some kind of, be it interest or dividend, it kind of forces or the central bank is kind of like nudged investors to go further down the riskier spectrum. But then when you have that capital to deploy, where do you believe or where should one believe it will give them the highest capital returns? This is not to mention that you know, some really strong marquee names that have done really well over the past five or 10 years because they've truly created a huge paradigm shift within their industry, right? All these, many of these tech companies, they've actually done phenomenally well, not just in terms of eyeballs, but in terms of actual top line as well as bottom line growth. So will capital flow into those avenues of investment? Absolutely. But will more and more people, including very large uh, pension funds or other large uh, asset management companies in Europe, in the US, when they look at the entire globe and they start wondering, okay, where can I deploy capital that can generate me an even more attractive return for the next five to 10 years, I do believe that some amount of capital will actually flow from the West towards Asia. Mm. All right. And on that theme of diversification, that's exactly what one of my favorite investors talked about in his Reddit session. It was called Ask Me Anything. And Ray Dalio touched on a host of different topics. I love the generosity with which he, you know, shares his thoughts with us investors. And now, Dalio has said that a flood of money and credit was unlikely to recede. And he stressed the importance of diversification. He, he's 
said to investors assets will not decline when measured in the depreciating value of money. And when asked for his perspectives on where financial markets are headed, he said, I believe that with the enormous amount of debt and money that's been created and will be created in the future, the most important thing to pay attention to is the value of debt and money relative to the value of assets and other currencies. Uh, do you agree? I mean, 100%. Like, I'm not a macroeconomic trader or speculator by any stretch of the means, but whatever Ray Dalio says or writes, I, I love to read it because it, he is not looking at a three-month, six-month horizon. He looks at, like, 10-year, 20-year cycles. And, you know, I, I strongly encourage all the listeners of your show to take some amount of time, if they're into investing, even if they're, like, hardcore equity investors, value investors, it makes a lot of sense to read whatever Ray Dalio has had to say. And this is in spite of him having a very poor year uh, this year round. Mm. I think his flagship fund is down like 20% or something. But that being said, over the last like 30 plus years, he's had a phenomenal track record. So coming to this specific, you know, this uh, ask me in this Reddit channel of his, he came across, like he gave many, many interesting points. Yes. Uh, first and foremost, the tsunami of debt coupled with low interest rates, he flat out said he sees no reason why stocks should not be or could not be trading at a multiple of like 50, mm. five zero. And that's unheard of, right? Like in modern financial times, the second a stock starts going like over 20 price to earnings ratio, people are like, okay, this is not in the value segment. One needs to be careful. But this is all, again, with the backdrop of interest rates. Warren Buffett compares interest rates to like gravity, right? So the lower interest rates, which means lesser the gravity, which means asset prices go up. And that's exactly what Ray Dalio is trying to say also, wherein the amount of debt leading to potentially currency devaluations, especially in the Western world, flip side to that is how, will the, how, how do asset prices get marked? And with very low interest rate, asset prices tend to rally substantially. So he, and he also proclaims that, you know, it, again, that being said, it's good to have a diversified portfolio, something that his flagship fund does quite extensively. So, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket just into equities, thinking that it can go to a 50 price to earnings ratio. Mm. Stuff could easily correct by 20, 30 percent. Another really interesting point that he brought up was about gold versus Bitcoin. Yeah. And while he was like, you know, it was interesting to hear his rationale where he said, you know, what Bitcoin has done is really interesting, right? Because it's created this, uh, because of momentum traders, people are trying to like, they felt that they've missed the boat and they start jumping in towards the latter stage. And it's a very interesting technology. The supply of Bitcoin is capped. So from that perspective, as long as enough people believe that they'll be able to make returns in Bitcoin, more and more people keep jumping onto this boat. But from his perspective, taking a step back, he would rather still invest into gold mm. because he believes that central banks use it as a store of value. And he would always go with central banks rather than, you know, potentially him being the last one to hold the bag where suddenly people realize that Bitcoin might not be such a great value storage uh, vehicle and start dumping uh, the underlying. Interesting, though, right? Because he's not referring to Bitcoin in that dismissive, oh, here's another tulip aspect. He did say it could serve as a diversifier to gold and other stores of wealth assets. It's, like, 
I, I think that's where like the really famous investors are kind of divided. Hmm. Like uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, Ray Dalio, they all came out saying, very surprising because, you know, many people thought that it's going to be the end of Bitcoin when it had gone up to 20,000, dropped down to 3,000. This whole concept of store of value is obviously gone. It's not being used in uh, any kind of mainstream actual use. You know, aside from PayPal and a couple of others enabling people to trade it or convert it into fiat, it's still not actively being used in any merchant store. So from that perspective, uh, you know, like these really famous uh, investors have kind of gone in two themes of, uh, uh, to it, where Ray Dalio and Ruckenmiller have come out saying, okay, you know, I didn't quite understand it before. It could be a store of value. It might not be a store of value. It's an interesting concept. Whereas other people, you know, like the Charlie Mungers of the world mm. are still very, very steadfast in saying what Bitcoin is doing, it makes no sense. It's not regulated. It's only encouraging, you know, under, underworld criminal activities. It's never going to be certified by central banks, which means this is a pure speculative play. Hence, investors should stay away from it. Okay, so let me give you a lightning round question. 2021, a year for stocks, bonds, gold or Bitcoin, Arun? <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I would say stocks. And it's for the following reasons. Uh, all the options you gave, right? Like bonds, I believe, are extremely overpriced. Uh, Bitcoin, it, it's it's a too hard for me to understand pile, so I will not bother speculating in that. Gold, with interest rates close to zero and geopolitical uh, issues reducing, as well as, you know, uh, the UK came out releasing the vaccine last week. Canada, I believe, today came out saying that they're going to be releasing the vaccine also for mass distribution. So it seems like one would hope that, you know, the world is going to be going in the right direction in 2021. But with interest rates being close to zero, I do feel that equities, not in general, because there's a lot of overvalued plays over there also, but broadly speaking, I would say equities are the way to go. Oh, thanks for being a great sport with that one. All right, speaking of the too hard to understand pile, uh, we have our own and that involves a headline that Chinese stocks are facing $722 billion in overhang and that these stocks are going to be unlocked for sale next year and it could test the market where valuations are at a five-year high. So what do we mean when we say that um, China stocks are facing an overhang? Right. So... Whenever any company does an IPO, right, like there typically is or, you know, insiders have profited or the the stock has gone or the company has gone public, I should say. There is a certain lockup period before which either investors can go about selling their shares in the open market. Because, you know, as a retail investor and you're looking at buying into, say, uh, Alibaba or Amazon or Google or Netflix or whatever it is, you kind of want the founder of the company to not profit or like be selling his or her shares to you. Obviously, the person knowing a lot more of insider information about their own business. So typically, regulators will always try and keep insiders to have a certain lockup period post the IPO. And that could go anywhere from like six months all the way up to like two to three years. Typically, it's done on a staggered basis. In addition to that, uh, it it involves, uh, in the case of China at least, the government forcing, I would say in a way, companies to issue more 
equity, given their debt ratios are unsustainably too high. And that's a big issue that we are seeing in China right now in the credit market space. And this can, you know, uh, one would really hope that the government is able to control this credit risk contagion from expanding even more. Baosheng was this bank that went bankrupt last year. As a bank, obviously, it takes a long time for uh, the center in this case to try and figure out which bank can acquire it and try to like net out all the be it derivatives or loan documents, etc. So from that perspective, the debt bubble that's been created in China has to slowly be deflated. And how do you go about doing that? The easiest way or the best way, especially when multiples are relatively high, is for the for companies to be able to take advantage of these. Some people would say frothy equity markets issue a bunch of more equity and thereby your debt to equity ratio starts reducing. So the overhang that you know the article was talking about is to the aspect of either secondary offerings or insiders uh, releasing their own stock, their inventory, etc. The reason for that is to try to reduce the levels of debt in the case of obviously secondary or tertiary IPOs for the equity market for the for the businesses. Okay, got that one. Here's a listener question. You know, you can take it or if if you haven't looked into it, you know, you can put it aside. But everybody's excited about that Airbnb IPO. And so the listener says Airbnb and DoorDash are going to use a hybrid auction. Um, what does that mean? And how do I trade an Airbnb IPO on, on, on the day that it's offered? So from the perspective of a retail investor wanting to get into uh, the Airbnb listing, it's like no other stock, right? It's like no other potential IPO investment that they were hoping for. Company gets listed. It typically takes two to three hours for the market to settle on a price. And then it starts getting traded for retail investors. So from that perspective, there really isn't anything uh, that much different. The one thing about the Airbnb IPO that I really you know, enjoyed reading about was then keeping a certain allocation, like a foundation uh, allocation. And this is basically for uh, a certain amount of stock is kept segregated, wherein it's going to be beneficial to the people who actually use the platform. So Airbnb, what does it do, right? If I own a property and I want to lease it out for a very short period of time, uh, I I will take pictures of that put it up on a certain website or on Airbnb's website. All peop- the, uh, on the other side, renters who are looking for, you know, a two-day, five-day, one-month staycation or holiday travel with their family, they think that this is a great option because hotel rooms tend to be small. Airbnb, like apartments, tend to be obviously much larger. So I can stay there for an extended period of time with the family. Great concept. Uh, it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's currently banned in Singapore. But uh, from the perspective of the company, what they've done, which is phenomenally brilliant in terms of PR, is ensuring that this foundation section of their company mm-hmm. shares are attributed to, to providing benefits and other advantages to people who rent out their properties. And this could be in terms of creating a kitty where in case COVID happens, how do they try and potentially give some amount of 
uh, rebates or some amount of benefits to the landlords, to the people who are renting out properties. It could be even coming up with new technology, using that capital to spend money on enabling the landlords to provide a better service to renters, etc. So this whole concept where many companies, right, there was a lot of bad PR wherein uh, these platforms were just basically price gouging restaurants uh, for delivery fees and all of that stuff, Airbnb has taken a very, very different route. So it, it, it's great to see from the perspective of them actually wanting to help society. And I do feel that in this day and age of a number of millennial traders, I think that actually might enhance their multiples quite a bit. Interesting perspective. He's Arun Pai joining us here on Money and Me. He is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. All right, let's bring it back home, Arun. Have you been Have you been going out a lot more and spending a lot more here in Singapore? Uh, I've been going out a little bit, and I <laughs> believe my wife has been spending a fair amount. But yeah, <laughs> good for her. Good for her. Now, retail REITs, I understand. DBS Group Research believes that malls and retailers in Singapore can capture a significant part of outbound expenditure by locals, and they believe this will more than compensate for the lack of tourist spend in 2021. Are you just as optimistic, and do you think that retail S rates falls into this basket of you know resilient um, assets and that investors should be shining a spotlight here? To some extent, I actually do feel that way. And the reason is, so whenever, you know, I'm driving around or walking around, I can see the number of people out and about right now in malls because they're just sick of this COVID pandemic of being cooped up at home. They know that they will not be able to travel probably for the next three to six months, dare I say. And it's December, right? It's the festive season. People love to go out. People love to, you know, oh, yeah. enjoy life a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we all deserve it after this kind of a year that's gone through. Uh, thank God for the Singapore government who has been able to control the pandemic the way it has. And, you know, we actually get scared by seeing one local transmission case, whereas I talk to my friends in U.S. and Europe, and if that number is not like a 1,000 or 2,000, they're like, oh, it's a good day for them. But, yeah, from the perspective of people being out and about, absolutely. From the perspective of uh, valuations of SREIT trading at relatively or headline attractive uh, ratios, yes. I think the one, uh, one, the one aspect of the article that really struck a chord in me is that what is required is SREITs to try and figure out how to go about providing a true value proposition to us consumers. Because gone are the days where, you know, it's a neat little store. I can just walk in, I can see exactly what I want to buy and just purchase it. Because it, I, I would rather do that via e-commerce channels, right? And that's exactly what's happened the past five or 10 years. I think it's very important for a true paradigm shift to come into this industry, wherein if I'm going to a mall, it's not just to go and buy like a t-shirt or a polo or something else. It's for that full experience. And I think one interesting point that these guys brought up is mm-hmm. potentially having like high-end designers having luxury booths now set up because these really large department stores have gone the way of the dinosaur where, you know, the Amazons of the world are going to take that over completely. But what people are looking for are experiences. If I just want to buy a certain product, I will have three clicks and it will get delivered to me. But if I want to, you know, take myself through an experience 
then I would want to go to a mall. And how does that mall try to provide me that experience? Because buying the product experience, mm-hmm. Amazon has kind of like locked that down, right? Like with two clicks, bam, bam, shows up at my doorstep. Yep. What is my experiential aspect of shopping? And that's something that, you know, I'm hoping to be wowed over the next two to three weeks. Oh, yeah, me too. And I, I intend to put myself out there experimentally, of course, uh, for the shopping experience, for the sake of the show, for sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to do the hard work. All right, thank, right. You, thank you so much for joining us and best uh, compliments of the season to you and your beautiful wife as well. Thank you so much, Michelle. Have a great day. You too. Arun Pai joining us live here on Money and Me. He's Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.